This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Vlad Vesale, Assistant Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, as well as a cardiologist here at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Vesale. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's truly a pleasure for me to be here today. You really fall into a wonderful spot. This podcast is really centered about building bridges between the laboratory medicine and the clinical practice. And you as a cardiologist who also spends a significant amount of his time in the laboratory and doing development, you really fit in a nice pocket for our listeners out there. And can you maybe kick us off with kind of sharing, so how does the cardiovascular laboratory support patient care? The uh, cardiovascular uh, lab is part of the clinical specialty lab. So it is a multidisciplinary lab. We do cardiovascular tests, renal tests, allergy tests, pediatric tests, so all kinds of tests. But from a cardiovascular perspective, today I would like to focus on two biomarkers that are very dear to me. And we uh, perform them in, in this lab. And there are some controversies regarding these Uh, biomarkers, the testing, and clinical implications. And these are ceramides and lipoprotein A. So let's dive down and take them one at a time. Can you tell us a little bit about ceramides? What are they? Well, ceramides are sphingolipids. They are present in all cell membranes. They're ubiquitously expressed. But certain ceramide species have been associated with negative cardiovascular events. And I'm talking about myocardial infarction, stroke, and even death, particularly in patients with known coronary artery disease. Uh, We have looked at Mayo Clinic at patients or subjects that have no known coronary artery disease to see if ceramides also predict these atherosclerotic events. And indeed, it turns out that ceramides are very good predictors of stroke, myocardial infarction, and even death. So ceramides are biomarkers that we can use not only for secondary prevention, but also for primary prevention. We have developed, validated, and now used in clinical practice for approximately two years, the simple test that we call the ceramide score. This ceramide score uh, contains four ceramides, three of medical interest, and the fourth one just to normalize the other three. These ceramides look at many biological pathways. They look at inflammation, thrombosis, lipid pathway. And we know that plaque formation is a very complex, a very active process that involves not only one pathway, but all three pathways that I mentioned. When you look at other biomarkers, established biomarkers of cardiovascular risk, such as LDL, that looks only at the lipid pathway. When you look at high sensitivity CRP, that looks only at the inflammatory pathway. So the ceramide score is a very comprehensive biomarker of cardiovascular risk assessment in my view. Wow. So, you know, as you're talking about it, it sounds like there's a role for it in, you, you mentioned both primary as well as secondary prevention. And so for our students who are listening, you know, so primary prevention before disease really manifests and then secondary prevention after disease is manifested. So I guess, is this kind of like the new LDL? Everybody should know their number. Everybody should know their ceramide score. 
And this is a very good question because it brings up some controversy. But I think in, in clinical practice, we tend to test ceramides for patients that are deemed at intermediate cardiovascular risk. Clinicians have tools to assess this risk. There are certain calculators. The most reputed one is this ASCVD calculator or atherosclerotic risk calculator. It's extensively used in the U.S., it does have some caveats and it does have some criticism, but if a patient is deemed at intermediate risk, clinicians really don't know what to do next. Should we be more aggressive with interventions and therapies or should we be uh, more conservative you know, with, with these interventions? So this is where ceramides come in. This is their role here. We have a patient at intermediate risk. We don't know what to do. Should we do any therapeutic interventions? Then we obtain the ceramide score. And this places the patient in a bucket of risk. It really stratifies the, the patients, whether we're talking about primary prevention or secondary prevention. And of course, if the patient is at lower risk, then we can go with the more conservative measures. If the patient is at very high risk, then we are very aggressive with risk factor modification. Another instance that I like to test ceramides is in patients that really don't have risk factors, but for example, they have a strong family history of premature coronary artery disease in first degree relatives. And this is a risk that is really not accounted by uh, the ASCVD risk calculator. Again, just to risk stratify patients, I use ceramides in this instance as well. So is this something that through your interventions, you can actually modify someone's ceramides such that this is a test then to be kind of repeated and monitored, or is this kind of a once in a lifetime because my ceramides are more static? Ceramides are very modifiable. And I think the beauty of this biomarker is the fact that they are modifiable. The current cardiology guidelines recommend different tools to assess patients at intermediate risk, such as the coronary calcium score or the high sensitivity CRP. Well, the coronary calcium score um, is actually not a reproducible test. You cannot repeat it because it's going to have different values that are not going to be informative for the patient. The uh, high sensitivity CRP is a very subjective, in my view, a biomarker because it really looks at the inflammatory pathway and just a little bit of inflammation, it'll be really up. So it, you can't really distinguish between inflammation and cardiac disease. But uh, ceramides have been demonstrated in many studies to be reproducible and modifiable. The Mediterranean diet, the aerobic interval training that we recommend in the cardiology preventive clinic, as well as medications that lower cholesterol like statins and even PCSK9 inhibitors more recently, they all drive ceramides down and the score will go down. So I use ceramides as a baseline to assess the cardiovascular risk and as a tool for me to decide what to do with the patient next, but I also follow on ceramides to make sure that that cardiovascular risk goes down and also motivate the patient that they're on the right track and they should continue the same interventions that I recommend. Maybe if you could give us a little bit of a flavor before we move on to the other tests that we were talking about, what's the controversy around ceramides? Uh, how does that enter the picture? Uh, we've got a lot of physician uh, listeners, a lot of uh, pathologists listening, as well as the students. So if you could give us a little flavor of where does the controversy come in and where is it today? Well, the controversy comes from the fact that ceramides have not made it yet in the guidelines. So the current guidelines recommend other tools for assessing patients at intermediate risk, 
But all these tools, like I discussed a little bit earlier, they have their caveats and there is significant criticism. For example, with the coronary calcium scoring for patients at intermediate risk, um, there's significant criticism, particularly with the method that is very widely used, the Agatson method. And so for this reason, and for the fact that this test is not really reproducible, you cannot repeat it. The guidelines recommend that we use this test just once in the lifetime. And so, you know, I have a lot of patients that come to the office and say, okay, I've done this test last year. Now I'm on a statin. Can we repeat the test? And I always have to tell the patient, well, we cannot repeat the test because I'm not going to be able to interpret these results, whether, you know, the, the score is going up or it's going down or it's going to be the same. I can't really interpret it because it's not a reproducible test while ceramides are very reproducible. The most important controversy is the fact that ceramides are new, a new biomarker of cardiovascular risk on the market, and they're not very well known. And for this reason, they're not widely used, like for example, the uh, coronary calcium score. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. So let's maybe now shift to the other test. You're talking about lipoprotein A, right, as the other assay to look at. And can you give our listeners a little introduction to that? Yes, lipoprotein A, simply put, is a particle that associates with a cholesterol complex. But if you look at it by a chemical structure, it does have two components. One component is an LDL-like particle. And of course, this LDL-like particle will uh, help with deposition of cholesterol in the intima. And the other unit is called APOA and has structural homology with plasminogen. And therefore, it inhibits fibrinolysis, and in animal models, is a prothrombotic component. Now, this APOA component also has uh, variable sizes. It has the so-called kringles, and depending on the number of these kringles, the size of this particle is variable from individual to individual. Now, this has two important implications. Number one is the size of the whole lipoprotein A particle. And number two is for the purpose of testing and antibody binding uh, in the immunoassay that we use to detect lipoprotein A. Lipoprotein A in many studies has been independently associated with negative cardiovascular events. Again, atherosclerotic events like we discussed with ceramides, myocardial infarction, stroke, and even death. And this is independent on any other traditional risk factors for coronary artery disease. I see. So even though there's been a lot of tests out there that we're thinking about for assessing our uh, cardiac health, you're saying this is still value added to that sort of equation. So who should be tested uh, for lipoprotein A? This is a very good question because there is quite a bit of controversy regarding different societal guidelines and their recommendations for testing lipoprotein A. If you look at the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, we recommend testing of lipoprotein A in patients with familial hypercholesterolemia with a 2A level of confidence. If you look at other American societal guidelines, such as the uh, National Lipid Association, their recommendations for testing lipoprotein A are much more extensive. 
If you look at the European guidelines, they recommend that lipoprotein A be tested in everybody once in their lifetime. So because there's all these controversies, there's also a controversy in respect to what the clinician should do. When should we really test? There are so many guidelines. Which ones should we follow? So in my practice, I test lipoprotein A for everybody who has familial hypercholesterolemia. But I also strongly consider testing for patients with established coronary artery disease or patients with established atherosclerotic disease, be that vascular, cardiovascular, or cerebrovascular. For patients who have a personal or a family history of premature coronary artery disease, And one recommendation that is frequently missed is for patients that have elevated lipoprotein A, we should always recommend screening of all first-degree relatives. And this is because lipoprotein A has a very strong genetic component. We know that if we're able to test five consecutive individuals representative of a normal population, one in five will have elevated lipoprotein A. And the majority of these patients are missed. Maybe if you could help our listeners understand. So, you know, you're making the the argument of for when do we test? And then how do we treat this uh, elevated lipoprotein A? Is this similar to the way we think about treating other high cholesterol, for example? Yes, it's, um, and this is another controversial uh, topic. In addition to when to test patient, also how to treat patient. Now, we know what lipoprotein A, we know the risk associated with lipoprotein A, we know kind of when to test for lipoprotein A, but now what do we do with patients with elevated lipoprotein A? Unfortunately, today, there is no etiologic treatment for lipoprotein A. There is no drug that will lower lipoprotein A and also reduce cardiovascular events. There are some drugs, for example, niacin, that has been proven to reduce the level of lipoprotein A, but uh, studies have failed to show a survival benefit for, for these patients with lowered lipoprotein A because of niacin. Because of that, and the fact that niacin has a lot of side effects, we do not recommend niacin to lower lipoprotein A. Estrogens also lower lipoprotein A by approximately 20%. Uh, Again, uh, given the side effects associated with estrogen therapy, we do not recommend estrogen to lower lipoprotein A. Sometimes we do use apheresis. We have two good positive trials that help us use apheresis in, in cases of very, very elevated lipoprotein A. But we should always keep in mind that there are side effects and risks associated with apheresis. More recently, there's a couple of trials like the Fourier trial that looks at PCSK9 inhibitors and other trials that look at uh, small RNA inhibitors like Inclisiran. These are drugs that seem to be very promising currently, but we do need more clinical validation before we're able to implement these drugs into clinical practice. So to answer your questions, how do we treat these patients? Well, I treat my patients threefold. First of all, I am very aggressive with risk factor modification. I have a very low threshold, very low cutoff for LDL. I try to bring that LDL as low as possible. I'm very aggressive with lifestyle interventions, motivate the patient to adopt healthy lifestyle choices. Uh, Number two, I always consider starting patients on a statin to reduce their overall cardiovascular risk, but also start them on a low-dose aspirin to reduce the thrombotic effects of elevated lipoprotein A. And finally, 
I always, and I underline always, screen all first-degree relatives of patients with elevated lipoprotein A. And I underline that because sometimes this is uh, missed in clinical practice. This has been brilliant, and I'm glad you've shared these two tests uh, with our listeners. And I'm curious, you know, I didn't ask this in the beginning, but I wonder if you could kind of share your origin stories with our listeners as you've gone through internal medicine and trained in cardiology and then come into practice. How did your interest in uh, laboratory medicine develop? And I'm curious, like, how has this kind of brought meaning for you and your career professionally? It's been a long trip, and I've always wanted to become a cardiologist. You know, I've done a, a PhD here at Mayo Clinic, and following the PhD, I worked with Dr. Jaffe, who was world-renowned biomarker. Uh, I worked in troponin, which really caught my interest and, and kind of honed my interest in biomarkers of uh, cardiovascular risk. And this further developed down my training. When I was training as a cardiologist, I was doing my fellowship. I did a lot of uh, electives in lab medicine. Basically, this is kind of how I'm formed. And I wouldn't imagine myself being in a different position. So it's a perfect combination for me. I love cardiology. I love preventive cardiology that I'm uh, the department I, I'm in. Um, I also love lab medicine, the other component, and uh, trying to bring my lab work in clinical practice and the other way around, trying to bring my clinical practice to the laboratorium. So I'm very happy with where I am right now. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. And I think for us, you really have brought a lot of the clinical into our, our laboratory. And I really appreciate that so much. And really appreciate your time to talk about this with us today, Dr. Vaselli. No, thank you very much. I, I truly appreciate being here. And, um, uh, you know, anytime you want to, we can repeat this. As you get more updates and some of these trials uh, finish, and, and uh, I think we'll link a couple of your papers below in the, in the show notes uh, to highlight a lot of your academic productivity and how this has really brought meaning to patients. Thank you for joining us today, you listeners. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.